The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Matthew chapter 6. Last week I preached the first part of this message, uh, and I we were looking at the book of Philippians, and I'm thankful that many of you said that the sermon was good for you. It was very well received. I am thankful for that. And I, and I just want you to know that this, this has really helped me as well. I, I, I like what we're talking about here. I think it's very important for us. And many of you told me that it's just what you needed in these uncertain times that we're living in. So we started in the book of Philippians with thoughts about God's providence and how that understanding the Lord's sovereign control over our lives is critical for our contentment. Philippians is the Apostle Paul's instructions about how to live a life of joy and peace, a life of contentment. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones titled his commentary on Philippians, The Life of Joy and Peace, and that's the life that Paul lived, joy and peace. Although reading about his life and listening to him talk about it, you might think it was anything but a life of joy and peace. But the key to it, the key to his happiness was to have complete confidence in God, the one who orders our lives uh, from the beginning to the end, that nothing that happens in our lives is a surprise to God. As James said, God knows all his works from the beginning of the world. So every good event is ordered by God and every bad event is also ordered by God to become a good event for us. In the end, we will realize how it becomes a a good event for us. Often we don't know that now. I think most of the time we don't know it. But we know that it's true because God has told us in his infallible word, he's given us this promise that all things will work for our good. I want to come back to this this, uh, study today and then we'll look at it again next week. And I want to talk to you about worries and anxieties, things that should not be a part of the Christian life. God has not missed and neither will he miss any details that would give you cause to worry. He has it all under his control. Abraham said that the sovereign God of creation will always do what is just and right. And so there is no need for us to worry When God has everything in his hands and he's always going to do with his people what is just and right. So yet that word worry and anxiety really should be a part of our Christian vocabulary. I want to take you to Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter 6. This is in the middle of his famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the world's most famous sermon, the most profound sermon that's ever been preached. And in these three chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gave a synopsis of life in his kingdom. And you can be sure that where Jesus is, there is never cause for worry. 
Where Jesus is, it would be foolish to fear that anything could happen to you that you would not be taken care of. Jesus said in John 14, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. You believe in God, believe in me. And so each of us as God's people, we need to ask ourselves, do we really believe in Jesus? Do we really believe in God? Do we believe that he's here? And how much you believe in Jesus, how much you believe he is here, and how near he is to you when he's here will determine how much you need to be afraid. And I will tell you, because he's near to every one of us, even inside of every one of us, there is no cause for us to be afraid of anything. I've never noticed a place in Scripture that Jesus was afraid. There are times that he was troubled. There are times that he was sad, but those times had nothing uh, to do with worry and fear. He was calm. He knew exactly what he would do all of the time in every situation. Do you remember when Judas Iscariot was preparing to betray him? And at the Last Supper, Judas got up to leave that meal. This is what we read in the third uh, verse of John 13. You hold on to Matthew, but I want to read this to you. John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. I would say that is about as calm a reaction that you could have. About as calm as you could be, knowing that in just a few hours that you would be nailed to a rough-hewn Roman cross. There was plenty to fear in Jesus' life. There was plenty of hatred, more than enough to go around. There was plenty of cause for anxiety, but Jesus didn't live that way. He didn't think that way because he was always in control. The Father gave all things into his hands. But I'm straying just a little bit from where I intended to go uh, today in this message. I I want to get you back on track with Matthew chapter 6. This is our main thought and topic today. So if you'll look in Matthew 6 verse number 19, we'll read starting there. Jesus says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. These three chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 hold a special place in my heart. I remember the day almost uh, 14 years ago that Gary, Brother Gary Moline and I, We're standing on the Mount of Beatitudes overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And that is a magnificent spot. 
And it was a, a beautiful day. And I thought, what a gorgeous setting for Jesus to preach this most famous sermon. The day we were there was not a day of turmoil. And often there, there is a lot going on in that part of the world. Much uneasiness in, in uh, that part of the world. But not on this day. It was a very bright, sunshiny day. The air was brisk. And you wouldn't imagine that there could be anything but smiles and cheerfulness from anyone that was there standing in the sunshine and enjoying that beautiful spot. But reflecting on the day that Jesus preached his sermon from that place, I can imagine that there was much uneasiness in the crowd. People listened intently to what he said, but I think that there was some squirming, folks beginning to feel quite uncomfortable with his teachings, because Jesus' teachings were unconventional. Unconventional, uh, What he said turned the teachings of their religious leaders upside down. They thought that they were doing very well in their religion. But as Jesus stood there explaining scriptures to them and showing them the, the true meaning of the Old Testament law, they began to see that all was not well. Things weren't as they seemed. Either Jesus was an imposter and terribly wrong or he was right. And they were duped by their religious leaders and thus they were in grave danger of God's judgment. And we remember, we know why they were there. We understand that. Why was Jesus able to gather such a large crowd to himself when there were so many people that were unhappy with him? Why, why would they listen to this itinerant preacher who stirred up so much trouble with everybody everywhere that he went? The rabbis, the doctors of the law, nobody was really happy with him. Well, if we go back to the end of chapter 4, if you want to look at this, we can see the reason that Jesus always attracted a crowd. In verse number 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments and those which were possessed with devils and those which were lunatic and those that had palsy and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. The reason they were there was because of the miracles. They'd never seen anyone like Jesus. And so as they watched him and saw what he did, they reasoned in their minds whether what he taught was true. Could it be true? If someone could heal from all of these diseases, if, if someone could do what he did in casting out demons, then surely he must have the power of God in him. And so they had great hope for Jesus because they'd long been looking for a deliverer. They lived with the Old Testament promises that they had for centuries that said that God was going to send a Messiah. And if Jesus could be that one, if he was the Messiah, then certainly they were willing to listen to him. And that was the, the general feeling among the common people. But the religious elite, as they listened to him, they were very, very uncomfortable. And the more that Jesus taught, the more he exposed their dishonesty and their hypocrisy. It became apparent. And in chapter 5, he just kept shooting down their theological statements. He exposed their wicked system of 
salvation as being a sham, their, their work salvation, their righteousness was not nearly good enough to meet God's standard. Turns out the spiritual leaders were worse than the people that they tried to teach. And then we get into chapter 6, and Jesus moved into their religious practices, which of course are the practical outworkings of their teachings, of that theology. And, and their worship was wrong. They worshiped the Lord in the wrong way. And, and in just a few weeks, we're going to talk about this, how in the Christian church today, that worship is often wrong. And it was certainly wrong at the time of these New Testament Jews. Their giving, their praying, their acts of piety, their personal devotion... These were things that Jesus criticized because they were done not to please God, but to be a show before the people. That's what their worship was. It was just a show so that the religious leaders could put out this idea of how holy and righteous that they were, and they would be applauded by the people. And so Jesus just highlighted their hypocrisy. He kept on doing that so that the common man could see that God wants a higher standard of truth and righteousness than what they provided. Now, the key verse in the Sermon on the Mount is chapter 5, verse number 20, where Jesus makes this shocking statement. He says, for I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that was shocking because the scribes and the Pharisees had everyone fooled that they were nearly perfect in God's eyes. And there was no way that anyone could be holier and more righteous than they were. And that's what the people thought. How could we possibly be more righteous than these scribes and Pharisees? But Jesus said, even if their pretended righteousness was all that they said it was, it is still not enough to allow them into God's kingdom. And this is really the central point of the gospel itself. In order to see God's kingdom, it takes a superior righteousness. In fact, it takes divine righteousness. The goodness and the holiness of God himself must be our righteousness. And without that, they were forever doomed in their sins. And so are we. Do you understand how helpless we are without Jesus Christ? What would we do without him? Because he is our righteousness. You remember this verse in Romans 8.32. Paul says, He that spared not his own son... But delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely, also freely give us all things? You understand why Paul wrote that? He wrote to persecuted Christians about the full sufficiency of God's providence. That if the father would give his son to die for us, then what possible good thing would he withhold from us? What do we have to fear? Why would God let us fail? Why would God let us perish when he gave his most prized possession to prevent that from happening? So Jesus went through all their religious practices. He cut through their theology, the things that they, that they did that made them look like they were righteous, their pretended righteousness. And he left all of that a heap of worthless sawdust. And the correction was so deep that if they had listened to him and understood what he said, if they knew the true meaning of each of his statements, 
the knowing that meaning was enough to secure for them a place in God's eternal kingdom. But I suspect that they understood very little. Time would tell because this huge crowd in the next two years dwindled to practically nothing. But we thank God for this, that what Jesus said was not intended for them alone. Jesus chose some believers out of that crowd to hear the truth, believe the truth, and know the truth, to accept his instructions. And then when he was ready to leave by the death of the cross, he prayed for them. And this is what he said in John seventeen twenty: Neither pray I for these alone, but I pray also for them which believe on me through their word. So he was also praying for you and me. The disciples would later recall the teachings of Jesus and they would teach them to others until the words of Christ would come down to us today and by the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, we would hear and believe the gospel and become children of God. The Sermon on the Mount was so important because it contains lessons for every believer. And if we could just take what is said here into our hearts and learn it and believe it and treasure it and practice it and trust it, then every one of us would develop into real, true servants of God, people that really have a heart for God. Now, I want you to notice the key verse for my sermon today. The key verse for Jesus and his sermon was... Chapter 5, verse 20. Our key verse today is verse number 21 of the 6th chapter. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Most likely, your treasure is what Satan uses as his greatest temptation. What is Satan's greatest temptation? I mean, look at our economy, look at our world today. Look at what we're going through. What is Satan's greatest temptation? Well, I think the thing that most often binds us, the thing that restricts us, entangles us, and most often tends to take our focus away from God's glory and his kingdom, I think you know it and would agree with me, that the answer to that is money. Materialism most often causes us to take our eyes off of God. That is a great temptation. Now, some quote the scriptures wrongly and they say, well, you know, money is the root of all evil. But that's not what the scripture says, does it? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the actual quotation is, or chapter 6, Paul said, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So it's not... It's not money that is the root of all evil. It is the inordinate affection for money that is the root of evil, of all kinds of evil. And pointedly, Paul says that coveting after money has caused many to err from the faith. Going after money has caused many a Christian to to fall and to leave the faith. And it's become the source of untold amounts of sorrow. And we can testify to that because we know so many people that it's happened to. And maybe it's even happening to you now. You and I struggle with depending on money rather than depending on God. And faith in money will always ruin faith in God. Money is such an important issue in God's word that almost one-third of the parables Jesus taught 
were about money. He spoke more often about money than he did heaven and hell combined. The only subject that he talked about more was the kingdom of God. And I think there are many preachers that take that as their cue, that since Jesus talks so much about money, that's what we ought to do. We need to talk more about money. And they think that money is so important that it's best for us to spend our time talking about it, how to get more of it, how to hold on to it. And that's really the same greed that we find with the scribes and the Pharisees that was so bad that they cheated their parents, they robbed widows and orphans, they were people who were thieves at heart. And folks, I'm afraid this is what we find going on in the quote-unquote Christian religion today. And that is the TV preachers that, that rob the poorest people with their lies, promise them things that can never be fulfilled that aren't in the Word of God. And their theology needs to be pummeled trampled into the ground just like Jesus did these old scribes and Pharisees in his day. God's not interested in your bank account. He's not interested in making you wealthy. What God is interested is in your heart. Where is your heart? And what are you going to do with your money regarding his kingdom? The Pharisees were in such bad shape over money, they were consumed with what they had. And that's the title of my message, Possessed with Possessions. They believed that the amount of wealth they had, the amount of things that they owned, that was an indication of God's favor. And so their idea was that the wealthiest of people, these are the holiest. And they could never accept that Jesus was holy. All that you need to do is just look at him. He didn't have anything. He didn't, he didn't wear the finest clothes. He, he didn't have a, a, a donkey to ride. He didn't have a cart. I mean, when he rode a donkey, he borrowed somebody else's, didn't he? He didn't have his own house to live in. He had nothing. When he preached, he continually upset them with his rebukes. When he told them, stop piling up things on earth. And when Jesus was teaching things like that, what he was doing was just cutting right into their avenues of self-righteousness. So the pharisaical health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of that day was just another variant of the age-old theme that produces greed, hypocrisy, and corruption. So this is the thrust of Jesus' statement concerning money in the text. It's not so much do you have it or don't have it. The focus is what does it mean to you? What does that money mean to you? What is your attitude towards what you have? And if you really look behind this, Jesus is not talking about basics of life and, and saying, well, you ought not to ever think about money at all, not think about how you're going to live. No, he is speaking of the abundance that you have. What are you going to do with all that you have above your necessities? Has that overwhelmed you? Has that taken hold of you? Is that the thing that you want and concentrate on all the time? How interested are you in your wealth and you find that that dominates your life, then you got problems. And what you need to do is to figure out how you can get your mind set back on Jesus Christ, not on how to get more money, how to hold on to it, what to do about the future. Is it possible that I can save enough? Are my barns big enough to hold it all? That's the attitude that Jesus addresses. If your heart is in your money, it won't be on Him. If money is what you think about constantly then your treasure is earthly. And Jesus says, you will lose that. 
It'll sink into the ground, never rise in the air. So this is what we'll talk about today and next week. It kind of took me a long time to get around to this, but we're at the beginning of the listening sheet now. And what I'd like to talk to you about here first is the contrast in riches. The contrast is earthly riches versus heavenly riches. Notice verses 19 and 20 again. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Now, since we're going to talk mostly about money, I want you to understand that the underlying principle is more than about cash. Not just your cash. This is anything that you treasure. It doesn't have to be cash, although that's a personal favorite. For some of you, it could be the house that you live in. Others, covet position, fame, a better job, notoriety. Some put their trust in their education. All of these things can qualify as treasures that will can take the place of God and his service. But the most easily recognizable expression of treasure is what? Treasure. The, the pirate's chest sort of thing. The, the gold coins, the, the necklaces, the jewels, the silver cups, you know, treasure chest stuff. Things that you want that will increase your wealth. Money and that which represents money. Money is the king that draws just about everybody into its servitude, but it's never powerful enough to grant anyone perfect security. Now, by contrast, Jesus does give us something that will make us perfectly secure because he deals with the soul security, and he will take care of that. That's the most valuable asset that you can have is your soul secure. Now, the contrast begins with corruption versus incorruption. Corruption versus incorruption. Now, they were savvy enough to know that treasure on earth is not the same as treasure in heaven. I mean, they they understood that. But they did surely need to be reminded of how one pales in comparison to the other. Earthly treasures are corruptible. And so he begins a series of examples here of how the things that this world offers us can be corrupted. That it's very, very hard to hold on to. So we notice here that he says that moths can corrupt their riches. Why does he mention moths? Well, this is because besides their gold coins, they had wealth that was invested in their expensive clothing. Sure, you remember the story of Achan in the Old Testament? That Achan stole some valuable items when Israel plundered Jericho. Israel was not supposed to touch any of the spoil because it all belonged to God. But Achan was greedy and he loved earthly treasure. And when he entered the city, he saw some of the wealth that he wanted to get his hands on. And he stole what belonged to God. And then he was found out. And it's, and it's really interesting, the, the honest, forthright confession that he made... Of stealing these things from from Jericho. This is Joshua 7 verses 20 and 21. And Achan answered Joshua and said. Indeed I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils. A goodly Babylonish garment. 
and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Part of the spoils of the city were garments. These were costly garments. This type of, of, of clothing was a symbol of wealth. The clothing was desirable. It was costly. Often this is the kind of clothing that would have gold threads that was woven into it. It's kind of interesting how Achim was, was so overcome with greed that he was too short-sighted to see, well, he could never wear those clothes. How could he wear those without being found out? But the garments, that is part of a person's wealth. And people parade their clothing still today, don't they? Uh, don't you, you know, you see so many people, gotta, you got to wear the finest brands. What they are, I don't know, because I can't shop in the stores that have them. So I don't know what the finest things are. I get confused by it sometimes because you go into the real expensive stores and you come out with something that's already got holes in it. So I don't, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, that wouldn't work very well with, with Jesus' illustration, would it? Moths eat holes in your garments, and he says that's a bad thing, and they, they're thinking, no, no, that's actually what we wanted. Uh, but anyway, going on, Jesus talked about moths. He said, they, they will corrupt your wealth, and he's talking about that ex- expensive clothing. Now, I can give you another example from the Old Testament about this. Uh, you remember Elisha's servant who, who uh, tracked down Naaman to claim a reward for himself? He went after Naaman and and uh, it's kind of disproportionate what, what Naaman had brought with him to give to Elisha. But the king of Syria sent Naaman to Elisha to have his, to be healed of his leprosy. So now when you go over there and you see that prophet, you take with you uh, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. Now, wait a minute, that, that didn't sound right when you put that together. Ten changes of clothes to go along with six thousand pieces of gold, and and with all this all this uh, silver. Well, that tells you that their clothes were highly, highly valuable. Owning and keeping and preserving expensive clothing that was a an important way to maintain wealth. I don't know if people do this still today. Uh, you know, I remember when we were young. You used to put mothballs in a, in a cedar chest and you put your good clothes in there and that was supposed to keep the moths from eating them. So you want to protect that because that's, that represents money. That's, that's the good stuff that you don't want to see ruined. Then he talks about rust that corrupts. I, I've heard different explanations of, of what this means, but perhaps the best that I've heard is that the word does not mean rust, like we think of iron rusting, uh, not an oxidation process that ruins metal, but rather he's talking about grain, and the rust refers to the, the, the spoil that happens because of mice and rodents that get into the grain and ruin it. Now, in, in Luke's gospel, he talks about, Jesus talks about building barns and putting stuff into barns, building bigger barns, the rich man said he's going to tear down his barns and build bigger barns to hold all his stuff. And, and Jesus is pointing out that all that, all that stuff, gathering all that stuff to yourself, that kind of wealth can decay because varmints can get into it. 
How many of you seen what happens when a mouse gets in your cupboard? What are those little black things that he leaves behind? I mean, you, you, you know, you're not going to eat that. You see that in your food, you're not going to eat that. The mouse does his business and this is what Jesus talked about. Your food, the abundance that you have, you store it all up and man, you don't even know. It gets corrupted, you can't eat it. Don't put your, all your stock into that. Then he talks about thieves breaking through and stealing your wealth. And we, we probably have in our minds the idea of a, of a thief breaking into your house, finding your safe and, and hauling it off, taking your money out. And of course that could happen. But there's that story we read just a, a few minutes ago in Matthew chapter 25 about a man who um, was given some treasure and he hid it in the earth. And I don't have time to go into that story and explain all the implications of the story of the talents there in Matthew 25. But it does help me to illustrate a common practice of those who were, what they did, what, what people did when they were afraid of losing their wealth. Now in that story, a man's servants were given different amounts of money. And each one of them was supposed to take his money and invest it or somehow gain more money. But one of the servants didn't do that. He was afraid of losing it. So he took his money, he dug a hole and put it in the ground. Why did he do it? Well, they didn't have banks to put the money in and people were afraid that they would lose their money. Someone would come and steal it. So many times they would dig holes in the ground and they would hide their money. And that's what this servant did. Over the many years of Roman occupation of, of Israel, there were many Jews that dug holes to hide their money. And then when they died, there was no one who knew where the money was hidden. No one could claim it. And still today, people will go out into the fields in Israel and somebody will get extremely lucky. And they'll dig up somebody's money that's been hidden all of these centuries. Jesus said, that could happen to your money. You put it in a, in a hole, and somebody can find it and dig it up. Well, thieves knew that people often dug holes to bury their money, so sometimes they would watch. And if they saw somebody out in a field digging for no apparent reason, then they figured, well, they must be burying some money. And so they'd wait a little while till those people were gone, then they'd go out there and dig in the field, and they would steal their money. Now the point here is that Jesus says there are many hazards that can claim your wealth. If you've got your trust in it and you're hoarding it, eventually you probably will lose it because trying to hold on to it is such a difficult thing that most of the time you can't. Something's going to happen to it. Happen to it. You know, it's like, it's like you, you put your money in the, in the stock market. Right now, the market's up and it's a great thing and you keep pouring your money in. You say, I'm going to keep doing that and keep doing that. It's just going up and up and up. And then what happens? All of a sudden, it's, a, it's gone. You can't recover it. It's gone. It's, what do you do then? It can just, like that, it can be gone. If you had your money in Bitcoin or something like that, you know how that happens too. It goes away pretty fast. What he's telling us is there is no lasting wealth in your money. Or, or no, no lasting security, I should say. No lasting security in your money. So stop putting all that your, all your thoughts, all your, all your work, everything there is into gaining more money that is not going to last. You can't hold on to it. Now let me, let me show you another story from the Bible. 
You know, nothing's changed over the centuries. Way back in the very beginning, people were figuring out how to get money as much as they could, how they could hold on to money. I often did the very, very wrong things. Like, like um, we just read a few minutes ago, some have erred from the faith because they've gone after money and, and it, it's caused untold amounts of sorrow. But I'm reminded of the story of Abraham and Lot. Both men were prosperous and they were blessed by God. I believe Lot was mostly blessed because of his association with Uncle Abraham. And he was a lot like a lot of relatives that, that kind of hold on to the coattails of the family because it's not because they just love their family, but because a wealthy member of the family will sometimes let that blessing pour out over other people that are in the family. Well, Abraham was the kind of man that let his blessings flow out to others. He was a faithful man and he gained riches because he never let that money get out of balance. Never, never let it ruin his relationship with the Lord. But Lot, his nephew, seems to be more of a leech. He probably wouldn't have amounted to much on his own. And, and we can see this, his true character, when an argument developed between him and Abraham over their wealth. Now, Abraham wasn't too worried about hedging his wealth because he knew if God gave it, then God can certainly take care of it. Now, if you look in your Bible at Genesis chapter 13 and kind of hold on to that for a little bit, this is the story of the separation between Abraham and Lot over money. And the choices that each made revealed their innermost feelings about prosperity. In Genesis 13, and uh, we'll start at verse number 5, And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdman of Abram's cattle and the herdman of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdman and thy herdman, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Now let's notice the difference between these two men. This is an example. This is letter B on your listening sheet. This is an example of saving possessions to later lose. Trying to hold on to possessions no matter what, just to later lose them. Wealth brings strife between people. In families, wealth often strains relationships. Now, Abraham recognized that to bring peace to the family and to this situation, the best thing to do was to split up he and, Lot, he and Lot to split up and go their separate ways. Now, the story, what we just read, it really doesn't seem that there was a personal strife between Abraham and Lot, but their servants, their households, they were having problems with each other. And there was, it's like a war going on between them. Now, Abraham's view 
was that sacrificing peace was no way to live. And if it meant that he had to give up the most advantageous parcels of land, it was better to do that than it was to hang on to his wealth. There are many things that are so much better than wealth. Peace and happiness can come in other ways. But Lot didn't care so much about peace, but instead he looked at ways that his wealth would increase. So he looked down into the plains of the valley. He saw the green grass and he imagined how that lush grass would fatten up his herds. And he saw how much easier that it would be to walk on level ground than in the rocky hills. And so he said, I will take the plains of Jordan. Lot had a choice. He knew what was in the valley. The wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah was in the valley. But for him, that's easy enough to get along with if it would keep building his wealth. And so what Lot did was to sacrifice his family rather than sacrifice wealth. And so he took his wife and his kids into the city of Sodom without regard to what it would do to them, what it would do to them spiritually, and he put them into the middle of a cesspool. It wasn't long before his two daughters married heathen men and they got caught up into the lifestyle and the culture of Sodom. And I think you know what happened in the end. He did escape Sodom, but he lost his sons-in-law. He lost his wife and then he was left with nothing but the shirt on his back. God burned those cities to the ground. A lot was trying to figure how he could save his wealth and increase his wealth, and it came at the expense of his family. Oh, he had saved possessions for a little while, but eventually he lost what was most important. And it's not much different than what you see with many Christian families today. A few years ago, we had a very nice family that was saved here at Berean. And they started to get involved in the ministry. But as their children grew older, the family wanted to get into the social scene and into the recreational scene. And they thought it was better for their children to get into the programs at school and to get into cheerleading and into the ball teams and all of that. And so it wasn't long that they began, uh, they started to miss church because of that. They started doing these other things. And so the kids became convinced that church really wasn't all that important. Finally, the family came back for a little while, but the father was broken because he realized that he'd lost his family. And he said to me, we need to get back in church and I need to raise my kids right. And so they did. They got back in church and they tried it for a little while, but then that allure of work and building wealth and the kids being popular, all that started again. And eventually they just dropped out of church. And I wonder, where is that family now? Because like Lot, they concentrated on everything the world had to offer. And and in the end, everything saved with the world is lost in eternity. Now, there's a different outcome for Abraham because he was losing possessions to later save. It was a big decision to let Lot have his way. This, this was detrimental to Abraham's wealth. But I suspect that if Lot had chosen differently and Lot had said, no, I think I'll head to the high country and you take whatever's left over, I think what Abraham would have done, he wouldn't have gone down to the well-watered plains of Jordan. 
He wouldn't have gone down to that wicked place. He wouldn't have given in to the lust and the corruption of that place. I think what Abraham would have done was just push higher up into the hills to make that separation. Lot made the choice. Choice he wanted. Abraham was left with a default selection that no one wanted. It wasn't valuable. It wasn't the expensive land in the valley. But you know what happened to Abraham when he started back up to those rocky hillsides? Well, we find Abraham. What happened to Abraham in verses 14 to 18? And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, and the length of it, and the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Now you see the difference here? As soon as Abraham determined to put his wealth in God's hands, God, God secured his wealth. God said, look around, Abraham. As far as you can see on all sides, the north, the south, the east, and the west, All of this is yours forever. And you know what happened to Abraham? He became the father of multiple nations. He became the spiritual head of the faithful. It was through Abraham that Christ came. Jesus Christ, the one who spoke this sermon, was sent to this earth through the family of Abraham. And here he is teaching them about a kingdom. And that is an everlasting kingdom that God will establish upon the earth. And the spiritual seed of Abraham will live in that kingdom forever and rule and reign with Christ. So to Abraham, it certainly wasn't too much to forsake earthly riches. He could lose all of that now. Because God promised he would gain infinitely more later. Now, you, you might be thinking, well, what are you talking about while, while, you, while you say there's earthly treasure versus heavenly treasure? Well, the earthly treasure, we, we've all got that figured out. We know what it is. Some of you have it. You've got it in bank accounts. You have it in stocks and bonds. You have it in real estate. You understand that. We all understand the value of wealth quite well. We all know that money can make our lives easier. We know what money can do. We can touch that money. We, we've seen it go to work. We've seen the tangible results of it in our lives. But no matter how much we gain, we all know no, it's staying here. We can't take it with us. And the time that's wasted to gain it and the short time that we have it in this life in no way compares to the time we will spend in heaven with a much better treasure. And so the time we take gaining here, taking away from God's treasure that's lost in eternity... The earth's treasure that's lost in eternity, taking away our time here that we could use to gain what's in eternity is the, well, I guess you would say that's pretty bad investment advice. It's a pretty bad thing to invest your money in to do. When the Bible says that there is a 
an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that you can't measure heaven's treasure in earthly quantities. And that is laid up in heaven for those who faithfully serve the Lord. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. These are incorruptible riches that moths and rust and thieves, none of that will ever defile. Well, that's a start on our subject. It's a very, very important one. Jesus knew we're people. He knows man. He knows how we think, what we do. He knows our overwhelming propensity to run after wealth to the detriment of our peace happiness, and eternal welfare. Now, next week we'll come back to this, but let me take you back to the key verse again before I close. Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you count salvation in Jesus Christ as your most precious possession, if you count Jesus Christ himself as more valuable than all the treasure that the world can offer, then you will spend your time working for his kingdom rather than working for your wealth. This is where Christ wants us to put our treasure. Put it into lives. Put it into the the, the kingdom of God. Put it into a life of ministry. Put, Put it into the Berean Baptist Church and rewards that will never corrupt. There is an eternal reward for eternal people that will live in an eternal kingdom. Let's remember this. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. If you love Jesus Christ, then everything you are and ever hope to be will be concentrated solely in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today thanking you for Jesus Christ, for the treasure, the inestimable riches that we have by our faith in him, treasures that are laid up in heaven promised to us infallibly. Lord, we thank you for that. Though we are so often unfaithful to you, you've always promised in your word that you'll always be faithful to us. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to serve you better this week. Help us to put our, keep our minds focused on the heavenly treasures that you have laid up for us. Think on good things, as we spoke last week from Philippians chapter 4. Think on good things. Fill our minds with the blessed things, where we have peace, happiness, and contentment in all that you give us. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings today. For everyone who's heard the word of God, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.